Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome back to another episode of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick, and in this episode, we're going to hear from five different home bartenders about cocktail ingredients they've struggled with and how some of them have even managed to conquer their cocktail kryptonite. But first, a couple announcements. And these are regular announcements. These are biggies. Announcement number one. Something we've been kind of sitting on since December, but we are pleased to finally announce that our Embitterment Chocolate Bitters are now our award-winning chocolate bitters. They are the recipient of a 2018 Good Food Award, which is a national competition judged by the Good Food Mercantile, which is a San Francisco-based organization dedicated to premium quality natural and local foods. Great organization and a lot of really great products in this competition. We took home a winner's medal in the elixirs category alongside our good friends from Element Shrub and Shrub District and our pals over at Catoctin Creek Distilling also took home a medal in the spirits category. So very strong showing from the DC area this year. You can pick up a bottle of our award-winning chocolate bitters from modernbarcart.com and to celebrate this tremendous honor, they're now 20% off through the month of February 2018, which brings us to announcement numero dos. You know, Valentine's Day is approaching rapidly. And personally, I've never been a big fan of selecting Valentine's gifts because it seems like they're all just kind of variations on the same tired box of chocolates. So this year, we decided to do something about it. Modern Bar Cart is excited to announce the launch of our Bitter Sweet Box, which is a great Valentine's Day gift for the cocktail lover in your life. It's got two 30ml bottles of Embitterment Bitters, orange and chocolate, as well as two premium chocolate bar minis from Chaco Tenango, which is a premium chocolate company based right here in D.C. as well. And there are two reasons why I love the Bitter Sweet Box. First, if you buy from us directly online, it's only $14.99 plus shipping, which is about the price of a decent bottle of wine. And second, it's a really great gift if you're looking for something a little less cheesy or played out than the traditional stuffed animal or dozen roses. The roses are dead after about a week, but these bitters keep on giving, and the chocolate doesn't hurt either. You can purchase the Bittersweet Box on modernbarcart.com or from select retailers here in D.C., but if you're thinking that this is just a fleeting Valentine's Day offering, think again. We'll keep it in stock for you year-round, which makes it a great anniversary gift, birthday present, or get-well-soon token. Those announcements being finished... I think it's time to make yourself a drink. And in keeping with the theme here, I'm going to give you an idea about how to use these chocolate bitters we've just been bragging about. Now, when most people think of chocolate cocktails, the first thing that comes to mind is, for some reason, chocolate martini. And I have no clue why this is. I've never had one. And to be honest, it sounds like a pretty suspect combination. Hey, would you like me to take this gin and put chocolate in it? No. That would be great if you would never do that. But it does beg the question, 
if not a chocolate martini, how does one use these chocolate bitters? Personally, I find the best way to use chocolate bitters is to make a subtle spin on a classic dark spirit cocktail like a chocolate Manhattan, for example. And making one of these is extremely simple. Two ounces of rye whiskey or bourbon, if you prefer. Then one ounce of sweet vermouth. And here I go with something a little brighter, like Dolan or Carpano Antica. They're a little brighter and lighter than some other um, of the heavier sweet vermouth offerings out there. And then finally, you just add several healthy dashes of embitterment chocolate bitters. You stir all that up over ice and strain it into a nice, elegant, stemmed cocktail glass and finish it off with an expressed orange peel garnish. And it's a beautiful drink, and the chocolate is a warm, subtle presence. Not some TGI Friday's teenage bartender squirting Hershey's chocolate into vodka, which is how chocolate martinis always appear somehow in my nightmares. Now, back to this week's episode. Today, as I mentioned, we'll hear from five different home bartenders about the struggles they've had with certain cocktail ingredients. And the metaphor I used to get them to open up about their difficulties was to frame it as kind of a Superman and kryptonite situation, that one substance that renders him powerless. These are great stories, and I think you'll learn a lot from the way these folks tested themselves against some tricky ingredients. Enjoy. I lived in Japan for three years, and yet I can't stand sake. Uh, I, I've seen a lot of cocktails with sake in them to where they replace gin or vodka or, or some other clear spirit and I, I just can't stand it in fact and, and then maybe the reason is because when I was living in Japan my neighbor offered me a sake that he had made in his house uh, and it had a, a snake that sort of somehow infused the sake and uh, it was a sake infused with like a, a real live snake and uh he was very excited to offer it to me because he told me it would sort of boost my my libido and and make me very strong in bed <laughs> so so and you, and you can't say no you yeah. can't say no and did you drink it yeah of course oh my god and was that your first experience with sake uh maybe oh. I, I i can't remember but it was, certainly, it was certainly my most memorable. Oh my God, how scarring. So two answers to this question. Answer answer 1A, sake is Charlie Birkinshaw's cocktail kryptonite. Answer 1B, snake. <laughs> <laughs> that was Charlie, there's a snake in my drink, Birkinshaw of Element Shrub, opening up about his aversion to sake, which I might add, differs from the word snake by only one letter. Coincidence? Either way, I think this is a good time for us to go back to our discussion with Professor Dan McCall in Episode 7, where we talked about how flavor aversions are formed and why they're so powerful. The other way that odor um, is connected with memory is in the formation of what we call flavor aversions or taste aversions. These are powerful memories in a way, <laughs> that are sort of bodily memories of, of odors that have given us problems before. So for instance, if you have an experience with you know, a bad oyster right, making you sick, people will swear off oysters for the rest of their lives and will be unable to ingest an oyster. And often you know, in the context of uh, alcohol, people have a bad experience with some particular spirit in their youth and then swear off that flavor for the rest of their lives. 
it's not uniquely human. It's been, it's been extensively studied since the 1950s in rats. Almost every species can form aversions in this way. So it, a, a smell or flavor makes you sick, and then you will dislike that, usually forever. Right? It's hard to unlearn those kinds of aversions once we get them. So, so in that sense, odor memory is powerful, right? Because you can you form an aversion to you know the taste of Bartles and James wine coolers from my youth, <laughs> and that flavor or peach. You have a bad experience with a peach flavor, and the, the experience can last your life, last a lifetime. And there is a lot of research on that, even research with humans, where it's an Israeli group that um, put humans in a, a chair and spun them around until they were nauseous and gave them flavors before doing that. And they formed an aversion to that flavor that made them ill. Wow. Right? And it's one of the things that's interesting about that is that even though in most of those contexts, we know it may not be the flavor that made me sick. So, for instance, you can have dinner and then get sick, but get sick because you get hit with a stomach virus that has nothing to do with what you've eaten. And those aversions can last a lifetime, even though you know cognitively that it wasn't the food that made me sick. It's not that flavor. Those people in that study knew that it wasn't the, the taste of the, the, it was a soft drink they gave them before spinning them in the chair. They knew it wasn't the soft drink that made them sick. They knew it was the chair, but it doesn't matter. Your body's formed an association between the flavor and the illness and has taught you to never touch that again, basically. So we know that flavor aversions can exert a lot of power and that they're not strictly logical. What if you can come up with a way to sort of sidestep your flavor aversion by locating an appealing substitute? Let's hear from Valerie Echeveste of Cocktails and Craft, who did just that. I really don't like cocktails with egg whites. I know egg whites can do beautiful, wonderful things in cocktails, and Stephanie loves all things eggs and egg whites. I just personally, like, uncooked eggs really freak me out in general. Um, so I just can't, even when I taste it, like Stephanie will make me taste her egg cocktail with egg whites. I think it's delicious. I just, something about it I can't get over. But at Colony Club, we had a cocktail using aguafaba, which is just the juice from garbanzo beans that's like left over in the can. And using that in a cocktail gives the same like consistency of an egg white cocktail. So you get that kind of like frothy outcome in the cocktail. And so that is a way now that I can enjoy types of cocktails that would have been used by with egg whites in them uh, without having to actually tackle my fear of egg white. Thus far, we've heard from two cocktail lovers who just won't touch certain ingredients no matter what. They've done the math and decided it's not worth it. But what about when your relationship to a flavor changes over time? That's the case for Maria Littlefield of the Owl's Brew. Let's hear what she has to say. So I would say my kind of cocktail kryptonite was actually a spirit kryptonite. And um, for a very long time, I really wanted to like it and just because I appreciated it. And uh, I just couldn't quite figure out how to make how to make it work for me. And that was gin. Um, and, uh, I love like, I mean, obviously we deal a lot with tea. So the fact that it's made, made with all these botanicals and these botanical bouquets, I found like the whole kind of process and story to be fascinating, but there was something about the juniper that I just could not <laughs> felt like I was drinking a Christmas tree every time. Um, and I, I just couldn't quite get behind it. Um, and, uh, I will say in the last couple of years, there's been so many awesome brands that come out that have, 
new botanical bouquets that aren't quite so juniper forward. And um, I feel like there's also been a huge shift um, in the way that people make gin cocktails. And uh, I've really started to uh, appreciate the flavors and, and learn to balance out the juniper a little bit more. Um, with some florals and some, you know, something that's not quite as dry as like a gin and tonic. So um, I would definitely say gin and uh, we've, we've, we've come around to each other. <laughs> <laughs> It kind of shows how Maria and Jin have been working on things gradually and over a long period of time. And it's nice when large-scale changes in flavor trends take an ingredient and place pressure on producers to make it more accessible. But the trouble is, you can't always count on an outside trend to come and save the day. Let's hear about how Chris Kurtz of Socktails.co conquered his cocktail kryptonite with a combo of introspection and DIY persistence. Is there a spirit, a mixer, a cocktail maybe that is or was once your cocktail kryptonite? And by that, I mean just something that you could not figure out, that you just struggled with. Um, and I guess the follow-up there would be, why do you think you struggled with that ingredient? And if you finally conquered it, how did you conquer it? Yeah, the, the one that immediately came to mind here for me was absinthe or, you know, anything with that kind of anise flavor to it. Uh, it's, it's never been something that I've been drawn to. Uh, I never liked, like, the black licorice growing up. Um, but, you know, Sazerac is one of the most famous drinks of all time. Uh, and I knew that, like, it, is it me? Am I just getting a bad Sazerac? Uh, whatever it is. Um, so I, I decided to actually make one at home. And I looked at probably like 10 different Sazerac recipes and people have all this advice. And the way I think about it is uh, when you, if you've ever watched like Chopped, the food show, people always gravitate towards this like truffle oil. And truffle oil is like this magic thing that'll just elevate your food. But the problem is you there's this there's a right amount to use and there is a wrong amount to use and that line is very small and i kind of feel the same way about absinthe is that it could really ruin a drink if you don't put the right amount in and it could also elevate your drink if it's just the right amount and making a sazerac at home just kind of swishing the absinthe around pouring it out and it was just like such a good simple cocktail experience and, I, and at that moment i kind of understood this is why people love this drink. That's a really, really fun anecdote. And, and I love the point that you made about that almost invisible tipping point. And I'm actually a little bit curious about getting more specific about what that tipping point is. So when you were making the Sazerac, was it that you were rinsing the glass and leaving this, um, the absinthe in the glass instead of pouring it out the excess or was it something else that kind of helped you to go from one side of that line to the other side yeah it, actually it was the first time that i made a sazerac that i ended up liking it it wasn't it was more like times i've had it in the past that i've had a sazerac in the past that maybe they just put too much in or maybe i just wasn't ready for that kind of flavor uh, but you know what I what I think a lot of it is, and this goes back to an episode that you had, is the difference between flavor and taste. Um, and to me, absent just getting a little bit of that scent in your nose sometimes can be enough. It, it's enough to change the way your your taste buds uh, taste that flavor. 
Um, and that to me is, is the perfect amount is where you just get a little bit of that kind of essence of absinthe. Is it me or have I just been getting bad Sazeracs? This question that Chris asked himself on the way to conquering absinthe is an important one because at the end of the day, there are a lot of flavors in the world that are widely popular and you're not going to like them, especially right out of the gate sometimes. And this means that, yeah, maybe it's you. Maybe you are actually the problem in this situation. So what are you going to do? Are you just going to give up? Or like Chris, are you willing to take the time and put in the research to find a way to make that ingredient sing for you? To wrap things up, we're going to hear from someone who actually relishes his cocktail kryptonite. He's on a manic quest to find a way to make it work, waging intense battles with many unpalatable drinks in the process. But he is not one to back down from a challenge. He is Alex Luboff of the Speaking Easy podcast, and his day will come. I, I think if my co-host Jordan was here, he would he would force me to to say Jägermeister. Uh, let's be honest, I've tried a number of different ways to make Jaeger really happen in a cocktail. And not not in bomb format? And not, yeah, not in, well, yeah, not in bomb format. And not in, you know, you, you, I could be like, oh, I have a bar spoon of Jaeger in this, in this cocktail, so it works. I, I don't want it to go out that way. Um, I, I want I want it to be a, a main component of the drink. You know, I, I started with kind of at a groaning level, uh, three parts, and it just it wasn't really landing. Um, I, I have to play with the I've played with the proportions. It's just not there. I think I think the reason it's not working is because, well, number one, I want it to happen so badly, uh, and I you know I, I really want it to be successful because. People have told me it wouldn't really work, and I think it does. I, I mean, there are I know of professional bartenders that have done it, and I don't want to you know just copy one of their recipes. I kind of want to. It's it's almost like a personal quest in a way to kind yeah. of figure it out. Uh, and uh, and yeah, I I don't know. I think it's it's such a it, you know it has such a medicinal quality to it that in a way. It's it's almost not supposed to be mixed with anything else. Sure. Um, and it, it you know like it's got all of these spices and flavors and like that's great and all but like you know that you know the, you know the way that like, spice thirty two interacts with your your main liquor may just really throw the whole thing off. Exactly. So the more complex the ingredient you know may be that way. I'm gonna use that as my excuse, but I think it's mostly just because I want it so bad. You know, and I, I'm just not there yet. Well, folks, that about does it for this episode. It's always a good day when you can say that no snakes were harmed in the making of this podcast, but sometimes that's just how it goes. Sometimes you got to kill a snake. I wish you all the best of luck in conquering your personal cocktail kryptonite. And if you ever want guidance or ingredient recommendations, please just drop us a note via email or social media. The Modern Bar Cart team is always happy to help. Cheers. New year, new outro comments, so listen up. If you liked this episode, spread the word. Tell us, tell your friends, tell your dad it's time he tried a new cocktail. Ask your mom where she put your granddad's cocktail shaker. Start having conversations about cocktails. You can join in our conversation by tagging or mentioning us on Facebook or Instagram at 
modernbarcart, or feel free to type a long flowing email for me to read and send it along to podcast at modernbarcart.com. We're real people and we actually respond to your comments and your emails. Also, if you want to go ahead and break the fifth wall and actually become a part of the Modern Bar Cart podcast by allowing me to interview you, that email I just mentioned is also where you can go and introduce yourself. Keep an eye out for new products as we continue to build out our awesome line of cocktail mixers, accessories, and gear. And until next time, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. Boldly.